Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Together PDX podcast Gospel Gathering series. I'm Elise Gallus, and today I'm excited to bring you a three-part talk by Simon Ponsonby. Now, usually I give you an intro of who he is and what he's going to be talking about, but I'm going to let Pastor Tyler Staten do that because his introduction during the event was really special. Instead, I'll just say this. I heard from many of the pastors who were there in person for this talk that God spoke to their heart. For those of you who are there, you know this wasn't just a gospel gathering of content to take back to your congregation or incorporate into a sermon, but it was for you as a child of God. So with that, here's Tyler Staten to introduce Simon Ponsonby with his first talk, The Fear of God. I've not met all of you before. My name's Tyler. I'm the pastor of Bridgetown Church, uh, another co-laborer here in our city trying to get after the same things that all of you are trying to get after. Uh, prior to living in Portland, I was, uh, I planted a church and pastored in New York City. And, uh, there was a really critical moment in my pastoral life two years into uh, that church plant when, based on all the metrics that Tim Keller had given me, uh, things were, were going generally well. Um, and yet I felt like the burden was heavy and Jesus promised that it would be light. I felt like I was doing everything I could to piece together a faith community and hard soil and the best sermons I could possibly preach. And then I was reading the pages of the New Testament and I was seeing that there, there seemed to be joy where I felt a lot of hardship. There seemed to be a supernatural sense of power in God's movement where I felt like I was gritting my teeth and typing words in a room by myself that might somehow make this thing happen. And I just began to think, you know, I have got to figure out what is going on with the Holy Spirit. And that led me uh, on a journey um, that was aided greatly by a book called More, which was written by Simon Ponsonby. And I can remember laying awake late at night in my 450-square-foot apartment that my family of four lived in together, um, reading and praying and asking that what I had, re- what I was reading on these pages about a real, um, thoughtful but honest experience of God's presence and power would become my own and would begin to kind of be the wind at the back of all of my work in ministry as it seems to be on the pages of scripture to me. And, um, and so from there I began to journey into more of Simon's writings. I remember, uh, being on a preaching trip to London and equally laying awake late at night, massively jet lagged, reading a book called, uh, The Pursuit of the Holy and just longing to, uh, become more holy and consecrated to the Lord and receiving a lot of biblical help in aiming that desire to where it can be fulfilled. Uh, so Simon, uh, is someone who from a distance 
has blessed me through the words that he's written down. If you're not familiar with Simon Ponsonby, he hails from Oxford. He taught N.T. Wright everything he knows. And, um, and Simon is, has written a whole lot of books, uh, which I could not recommend highly enough. I've continued to make my way through his work. He is, uh, he probably will resist this, but he's a theologian for sure. He is a man who is rooted deeply in the scriptures and knows the scriptures well, but he's able to articulate the scriptures to the everyday person. And that's my favorite kind of theologian because I, I, I am an everyday person. And so that's who I need. And, um, and Simon is also someone though who is a practitioner of the faith. And so I think that his theology comes not only from his head, but from his bones and his experience. And that's where I found a lot of resonance. So we're so grateful to have with us today Simon Ponsonby. Let's welcome him. Well, I've never had an introduction like that, and I know you're all going to be very disappointed <laughs> after it. Uh, what a privilege and a pleasure to be here. King David said, who am I and what is my family that you've brought me this far? And I've come a long way, 22-hour drive, but I, I pinch myself when I'm away from home and find myself in amazing contexts with God's people talking about the Lord, and I think, who am I to be doing this? And you may well think that after I've spoken <laughs> as well. But it is a, a, an awesome privilege, and uh, I'm honored and uh, humbled and slightly intimidated by it. I want to thank Ken, and I want to thank Kevin and the team for the invitation. Uh, we flew in late on Tuesday night. And we haven't slept since. I came with one of my colleagues. So I hope that something of what I say makes sense uh, and isn't too addled, filtered through the, the jet lag. But our, our desire today is to meet the Lord and to be renewed again in our affections for him, uh, our commitment to him, our service for him, our experience of him. My friend Owen uh, was telling me that he was at a conference a, a while ago and a very distinguished preacher got up and was being interviewed and was asked the question, what would uh, Jesus say, do you think, to those who are gathered here? And there were ministers, a minister's conference. And uh, the preacher said he thought Jesus would say, thank you. Thank you for serving him and his bride. And ministry is really costly. And uh, people have no idea what we as ministers and you... Sorry, sometimes when I preach, I either sweat or cry. Uh, I swear I'm a fat man with a dicky heart and I cry for... But we want to meet with the Lord and to hear from him today, don't we? If you have a Bible, please turn to Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to read from verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, 
from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. For the past, I don't know, 60 years or so, it seems that the Holy Spirit has been doing all manner of works of renewal in the church and enabling the church to rediscover old truths about him. We've learned more about the fullness of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit or We've learned about the gifts of the Spirit. We've been pressing into intimacy in worship, every member ministry, a spirit-based community in ecumenism based on our pursuit of Jesus rather than the lowest common denominator of doctrine. We've been learning about intercessory prayer and the Jewish roots of our faith, our responsibility to the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, uh, theology of creation care, theology of God at work, a challenge to sacred secular divide, a rediscovery of our Jewish roots of our faith. And all these things have been really important and there are more things that the Lord has to show and to uh, help us rediscover. But one of the things that I believe in this season the Lord wants us to rediscover is the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11.2 says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And we all know this is a major messianic text and describes the action of the Spirit upon the Lord Jesus. It uh, is also a very important text in the Jewish community of reflection, and they believe it's a prophetic commentary on the menorah, the seven flaming candles. In the history of the church, it was the uh, number one text through the medieval period to understand the nature and character and work of the Spirit in the church. It was always used at ordinations and at confirmations in the Western tradition. And structurally, well, we compose it in different ways, but it seems to me there are three couplets and a conclusion. There are seven graces or gifts that some see here, and they relate to two categories, that of revelation and that of unction, of a divine knowing and an exercise of divine power. But the sixth and the seventh are really intriguing, perhaps surprising. They talk about the fear of the Lord, and then Isaiah underlines this, under prophetic anointing, underlines says, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. I've written some things on the Holy Spirit. I've 
tried to understand the work of the Spirit. I've preached like all of you will have hundreds of sermons around the theme. I've heard countless more. But when I wrote this talk a while ago, I was thinking hard. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on the fear of the Lord. Now, that may well be different here. My apologies uh, if that is the case. But that was my experience. And I thought, how can this be? That if this is a normative description of the normative work of the Spirit, and here two of the seven predicates are to do with the fear of the Lord, then why has there been such an absence of the fear of the Lord in the church, in the tradition, the evangelical context, the charismatic context that I find myself in. And it got me to wondering whether or not what spirit we had actually received if we haven't got this fear of the Lord. And I wondered if I'd been reading scripture and doing all my reflecting and writing on this with one eye closed and one chamber of my heart closed. I do believe that we are living in the days when we need more of the fear of the Lord in our hearts and in our church communities and that spilling out into our neighborhoods. So what then is the fear of the Lord? Well, in one foundational biblical text in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20.20 Moses tells the, the people do not be afraid don't be afraid God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and that appears like an oxymoron how can on the one hand Moses say don't be afraid and then on the other fear the Lord because somehow the fear of the Lord is not actually an equivalence even though it may sound it in a semantic way to being afraid the fear of the Lord is not the same as being afraid of the Lord per se the fear of the Lord is a delight and not a dread and the word therefore delight is from the Hebrew, I believe, I'm no Hebraist, but it's a word rooted in smell, the word for smell, that God delights in uh, a burnt offering. It's a, I don't know if, do you have Bisto gravy here? They'd understand that back home. The gravy, and there used to be an advert for the gravy called, ah, Bisto, as they breathe it in. And this is like a kind of bisto moment. Or it's like savoring the fresh coffee. Ah, that fresh coffee in the morning. The delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Takes a deep breath and inhales it and says, yes. The American theologian Robert Strimple says, the fear of the Lord is a convergence of awe reverence, adoration, honor, worship, confidence, thankfulness, and love. He seems to have thrown a lot of words at that. But I think it is pretty elusive, this fear of the Lord in terms, it's difficult to articulate it, but it's not to be afraid per se. There's as much love in it as there is fear. Jesus Christ superstar, do you remember that? I think some of you are old enough for it. There's a great song. I love it. I play it in the car. It's old school. It's the 70s. I grew up then. And there's a great song in it 
where Mary Magdalene sings to the Lord Jesus and she says, it's called, I don't know how to love him. And she says, yet if he said he loved me, I'd be lost. I'd be frightened. And the fear of the Lord is this, is this falling in love fear kind of fear. Tim Keller defined it uh, with the illustration of Christopher Lee, who uh, was obsessed with J.R. Tolkien. Christopher Lee played Sauron in Lord of the Rings. And Tim Keller says that when Christopher Lee met Tolkien as an old man, Christopher Lee said he felt like kneeling. The fear of the Lord, you you find your knees. I think we've lost our knees in the church. I have a friend, a songwriter called Tom Reed, and he said whenever he hears the term, the fear of the Lord, he thinks about the time he went to a race course. We're not recommending promoting race courses and, you know, making no value judgment about that whatsoever here at this moment. But he said he went to a race course and he stood as a little boy and he stood down with his dad and he said, as the horses came round, thundering round the course, he said, the whole ground shook and he took a step back and he took a deep breath. That's the fear of the Lord, that he comes thundering and we step back. All of these, I think, are helpful to me in trying to understand what this elusive fear of the Lord is. It's a kind of woe and a wow all in one. Marilyn Adams, some of you may have read her work, professor of philosophy at Yale. She was in Oxford previously. I remember having lunch with her. She just laughed through lunch. I thought, you're not far from the kingdom if you can laugh. And she said that uh, in her prayer, her, uh, her jet lag, her prayer was this. She said, God, you are really, really, really big. And we are really, really, really small. I love that. That was an Oxford Regis professor of philosophy, the top chair in the land. And then she goes to Yale. And yet, when it comes to describing God, this brilliant philosopher, well, she's got to say, you are really big and we are really small. I think that's it. It's about perspective. It's recognizing God as our creator and we are just a loved creature before him. He's God. And we worship the one who loves us and has reached out to us. He is holy and we're sinners. And yet he hasn't turned his back on us. Instead, he's advanced towards us. And he saw us from afar and he loved us. I became a Christian in 1985. And my first real sense of the fear of the Lord was... In 1986, I attended a major conference in England, and and, uh, Michael Green, I don't know if you'd have heard or or read of Michael's work. Michael Green, I remember preaching on um, Philip the Evangelist and the signs and wonders and the charismatic power that accompanied his ministry in Samaria and so on. And he preached on it. 
And I thought, this is amazing. And uh, he, he, was a, he was a short man. He was only about sort of five foot four, but he seemed to be a giant on the stage. And I remember thinking, I never heard preaching like this. And he finished, and then we had a coffee break, and up got John Wimber. And I thought, who is this man? And he was wearing, like, lemon colored clothes, you know, like, and I go, what is this? And, uh, and, you know, he got up and he was sweating and I, he said, oh, I know, I need to lose weight. And I just thought, this is so unusual, you know. And then he taught and it was good. And then he invited us to stand and he prayed that God, by his Holy Spirit, would manifest his presence and power and majesty and glory amongst us. I just heard one of the best preachers in in England preach. And then I listened to John Wimber with his Californian accent. I'm not quite sure what he said. I don't remember a word of it. I just remember at that moment, someone beside me screamed as she was set free from trauma and pain that was suppressed by the presence of God. And then I, then people began falling over. I'd never seen any falling over, laughing, crying, physically manifesting. I thought, I thought this is bedlam. And I didn't know whether I should run out or run to the front. I just felt I needed to run. So there needs to be a response here. But it seemed God came. Immedi- God was immediate to us, tangible powerfully among us. I'd heard a sermon that was peerless on the anointing of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit that accompanied the evangelist in the early church. But here was John Wimber, somehow humbly and simply able to uh, open our hearts to God, and God came amongst us. And it was terrifying and wonderful all at once. It was woe and wow. I've never forgotten it, never recovered from it. God. Now we know God is always everywhere. And where he is, he's always as himself. But there are times when his presence becomes more present, more powerful, more visible, more tangible to us. And in that moment... There's fear and trembling, as Kierkegaard would quote Paul. And there's wonder, and there's wow. The fear of the Lord is the normal Christian life, or should be. Over 300 times in Scripture, it talks about the fear of the Lord. In fact, I mentioned Kierkegaard. He said it is the essence of the Christian life to live in fear and trembling under God. Orthodox Jews, I love, they pray every day that God would give them the fear of the Lord. Someone wrote to me a week ago. I was really struck by it. And one of the reasons I'm giving this message, um, I had thought about it and then I was going to change it. But uh, she said that she had been praying regularly that God would give her the fear of the Lord. I wonder if you've ever prayed for that. The fear of God frames life with God. 
It's a major theme in Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 5.29, fear God that it might go well with you in the land. Deuteronomy 10.12, fear God for your own good. The fear of the Lord is to frame the life of the people of God in the land that he gives them. And when they fail to fear the Lord, then they forfeit their right to life in the land, and exile comes. The exile is a consequence of a failure to honor God, to be in awe of God, and to live rightly before him. The most often repeated proverb in scripture is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. And the writer to Ecclesiastes says, the end of all things, the whole duty of man is to fear God. Our lives are to be framed by the fear of God. Like an inclusio, a, a bracketing of our life. We live within those parameters, the fear of God, the awe, the love before him. Some think that the fear of the Lord is just an Old Testament concept. You hear this sometimes and it's wrong. St. Peter said we're to respect everyone, honor the emperor, and fear God. The Apostle Paul in Romans, after a whole uh, catalogue, a, a, a litany of sin, at the end he says that sin is not fearing God. Romans 3.18. Fear of the Lord is to instruct us on how we live justly often it comes with ethics it's attached to an ethical directive to honor the poor and to not that and then fear god it informs how we live and serve others but the fear of the lord brings god's blessing and the psalmist offers all sorts here's just a few i'll throw out talks about the the, those who fear God are befriended by him and directed by him. When we fear him, he's our friend. And he'll direct our lives. He stores up greatness for those who fear him. He unfurls his banner against the enemies of those who fear him. He loves and delights in those who fear him. I love that psalmist line. We delight in the fear of the Lord, and when we delight in the fear of the Lord, he delights in us. What a beautiful thing that is. His eyes are on those who fear him. He provides for those who fear him. He encamps around those who fear him. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. No wonder Isaiah can say that the fear of the Lord is a treasure treasure the fear of the lord is the normal christian life and then thirdly sin appears when the fear of the lord disappears and that's often where we find ourselves in our li- our own lives and in our people's lives and let me suggest three things here first When we lose the fear of the Lord, we trivialize evangelism. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. There were actually 
two key motivators for Paul uh, and his ministry as an ambassador of reconciliation. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11, that's the fear of the Lord. Living in the fear of the Lord, in the view of judgment, is a motivator for his mission. That one day we will all stand before the Lord of heaven and earth and our life will be laid bare before him. And he who is surrounded by a belt of righteousness will judge us according to his standard. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, we work hard, we bring everything we've got to convince and compel people to embrace Jesus. And the second motivator is, of course, 2 Corinthians 5.15, that the love of Christ compels him. Two hand in hand, the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. The love of Christ constraineth me, as the King James says, compels me, motivates me. I'm moved by these two things, the love and the fear of the Lord. And many Christians want the love of the Lord, but not the fear of the Lord. And some Christians actually only want the fear of the Lord and just put hell fire in the, you know, rather than the kindness of God leading people to repentance. They just want to scare them into hell. That doesn't seem to me to be apostolic. But it's both. And error comes when we drop or emphasize one over the other. Tertullian said that the mark of a false prophet was that they do not fear God. You'll know from all your theological studies that he had a real issue with the Marcionites who wanted to cut apart the scriptures and get rid of the Old Testament and get rid of the Old Testament God. But the big issue with Marcion was he didn't like the fear of God. He didn't like a holy, awesome God coming in judgment. Instead, he advocated kind of love and antinomianism. If you reject the Bible and sources... The Bible is a source and norm for belief. Then you invent your own doctrines. And you invent your own ethics. And God who doesn't judge sin because humans are fundamentally good. And there is no final judgment. And heaven is not just open and available to all. But all will find themselves there. And, and if that's your God, you don't have people are not sinful. And sin isn't going to be judged. And you don't have Jesus as a substitute. And uh paying the price and the penalty, taking the judgment uh, for our sin on himself. And you dilute what the cross is about. You dilute the blood of Jesus. And the church is no longer the vehicle to uh, communicate the gospel of salvation, but really it's just a community and just social club. Mark Tooley, the head of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, lays the blame for the decline in the church in America in places on liberalism that negates evangelism. And he says this, liberal theology certainly doesn't acknowledge a need for saving souls or evangelism. And of course, if you don't teach the need to save souls or evangelize, consequently you don't do evangelism. And then churches will decline, maybe not immediately, but within a generation. When we lose the fear of the Lord, we trivialize evangelism. Secondly, when we lose the fear of the Lord, we live to please others. We live to please men. Too many people putting pleasing people before pleasing God. 
Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Thomas Cranmer, who wrote the great prayer book, one of the leaders of the Reformation, Protestant Reformation in the church in England, eventually martyred for his faith. While he was imprisoned in Oxford in 1555, Queen Mary uh, and he were engaged in a dialogue. She didn't really want to kill the former archbishop, but he wrote to her and he claimed this verse. And he said he couldn't go back on what he'd said and he couldn't recount his position and decision because he feared God rather than would bow to the pressure of the power of the state. And that fear of God led to martyrdom. And I wonder how much of our ministry, our own ministry individually, our ministry in our churches, our I wonder how often decisions that we take are really predicated on the fear of men rather than the fear of God. That we don't want to offend and we want to please, keep everyone happy. I wonder how many of our decisions as pastors or with our elders boards or our synods or our governing bodies are actually led by fear of man, not fear of God. I know in my own life, a number of times I found myself saying things or doing things just because I, I was more afraid of people than I was of God. The father of, one of the fathers of 20th century renewal, a wonderful Bible teacher from the Brethren, my family, I came from the Brethren. Um, he was called Campbell McAlpine. I don't know if he's known here, but He's a dear saint, went to be with the Lord a few years ago. He was once preaching, and as he was preaching, he stopped himself because he was stroking the person who was there, you know. And he said, he stopped, and then he said out loud, I fear God too much to flatter men. And I was reading that in his biography, and I was really struck by that. I thought, have I in my own ministry just stroked others just so I'd be stroked or just it would be easier (laughs) I found myself at a conference and uh, I could see someone who was going to be speaking later at the conference sat near the back and um, they were sort of they were not engaged in what I was saying. You know, I'm not looking to see if you are, by the way. Um, but they were not engaged, and I could see them, you know, just like this, and they didn't like. And so, out of my mouth, I found myself speaking from that sort of insecure place of rejection and fear of rejection and insecurity and all of that gunk. And I just said, oh, I can't wait till this afternoon to hear blah, blah, blah. And uh, they've so blessed me over the years with them. And I was stroking them because I'd seen that they were not engaging with me. And I just wanted them to. And of course, they like sat up and, you know, enjoyed what was being said. But immediately I felt the spirit just dissipate in me and I was up there on my own as it were talking to myself you know the Lord said boring and off he went you know and um, you know I just think we can do that 
That, was, that wasn't that long ago. We, you know, we can have the fear of man, just a look from someone, a sense of intimidation. Oh, I better not upset that person because they might withdraw their tithe from the church. Or, oh, if I lose them, I'll lose their family. And I want, oh, and, and so we act because of the fear of man rather than the fear of God. But those who have the fear of God put God first. It's always God first. We've always got our eye to him and our ear to him and our heart aligned to him. What, What is the right thing before the Lord? I don't want to do anything that would offend him. You know, when you really love someone, that they are all important. What they think, what they feel, they are the criteria. They are the procrustean bed on which everything is tested and whatever doesn't fit is lobbed off. You know, I've been married 35 years last Sunday or Monday. I know. I know I don't look old enough, but... And my wife, Tiffany, her name in Greek is the same as Theophany, an appearing of God. And she is just, what a blessing. I am a blessed man. And I love her so much, I wouldn't want to do anything that would hurt her, that would harm her, that would offend her, that would cause her pain. Many times in my life, sadly, I have, but in my heart, I don't want to. And that's the fear of the Lord. Our, our, our eyes, and our, we are attuned to him, we're sensitive to him. And we don't want to do or say or think anything. Not just personally, not just in terms of, you know, morals or something, but just in our whole ministry. Lord, is this all right by you? And then thirdly, when we lose the fear of the Lord, we relativize sin. You know, the first reference to the fear of the Lord is in Genesis 20, verse 11. There is a form of hermeneutic. I'm not sure I would wholly back it, but it's the kind of principle of first reference that when you find the first reference to a word or a a theological doctrine, you pay particular attention because the Spirit who has inspired Scripture has laid it down as a foundation for us to understand that. But the first reference to the fear of the Lord in Genesis 20, um, Abraham says, surely there is no fear of the Lord in this place. And he fears that they're going to kill him in order to take his wife. The Indian apostle Zach Poonan says, the first sign of the, that there is no fear of the Lord is sexual immorality. The fear of the Lord in that context is that this king wants Sarah. And when the fear of the Lord disappears, very often sexual immorality appears. You cannot commit adultery in your mind or in act if you fear the Lord. You just can't do it. I don't think you can ignore the poor if you fear the Lord. I don't think you can fiddle your tax returns if you fear the Lord. You can't watch porn if you fear the Lord. You cannot abuse your position of power that you have as ministers over others if you fear the Lord. You cannot harbor resentment and bitterness towards others if you fear the Lord. You cannot 
sin. You cannot keep in sin if you fear the Lord. So often when it comes to Christian ethics and understandings of holiness, we think in terms of prohibition and what not to do and what to do. But I think the main thing is if we fear the Lord, everything come, falls into place. The fear of the Lord will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the fear of the Lord. But you can't have them both together. And St. Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There's not enough fear of the Lord in the church. And then, lastly, the fear of the Lord brings the nearness of the Lord. When we fear him, we bring him near. Something we see in the early church, we see it in Acts. The fear of the Lord is a, a, a very prominent theme, and so is the immediacy and the power of God in signs and wonders. And so we see in Acts 2, uh, 43, it says, Everyone was filled with fear, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. They go hand in hand, the fear in the Lord, and they got many miraculous signs and wonders. You know, I've been a Christian 30, however many years it is now, since 85, going on 34, this, uh, 39 this summer. And I've been around charismatics a long time. I'm a card-carrying charismatic. I hope that doesn't offend you. But I am. I mean, I've got a t-shirt with it. And uh, I've written books on it. I've, you know, all of that stuff. I haven't seen many signs and wonders. Not many. In fact, the truth is just a few. In all these years. Hundreds, thousands of appeals. Pray for hundreds and thousands. Not a lot of power. Manifest power. Yes, the power of the gospel that saves. I've seen that. Praise God. That's the most important demonstration. But this kind of power that we see written about in the book of Acts, with many signs, uh, miraculous signs and wonders, no and I wonder if there isn't a fundamental equation here. The fear of the Lord brings the nearness of the Lord. And when we fear him, honor him, live in awe before him, his spirit comes and rests upon us. And when he comes, he comes as himself with all his attributes. And things are moved out of the way with the fear of the Lord so that he may manifest his power. In Acts 5.11, following the death of Ananias and Sapphira, who lied against God, it says great fear seized the whole church and all those who heard of these events and the apostles performed many signs and wonders. There it is again. Many signs and wonders in the context of the fear of the Lord. I believe we're living in a time when the church is going to be returning to this apostolic understanding of living rightly before God and 
His great power manifest amongst us. In Acts 9.31, and I love this verse, it says, The church lived in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit. Isn't that a great verse? Fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit. Again, the fear of the Lord is not about being afraid. Somehow when we fear the Lord, His Spirit is present and comforting us. That's a sweet verse, that is. Well, we need to finish and have a cup of tea. You'll know of Duncan Campbell, who was so used of God in the uh, Hebridean revival that took place in the Hebridean Islands in the late 1940s. He was a remarkable man. He was an evangelist and uh, he was ministering in Ireland, actually. He was due to be ministering for a while. And as he was speaking, he was actually stood up speaking and we're about to speak and the Spirit said, you you need to get over to the Hebrides. And he said, what? And he said, right now. And he left instead of preaching. And I might just walk out if the Spirit tells me. But um, he, uh, And God used him in an extraordinary way. We know that during that revival, the glory of God just came down upon that, those islands and those island communities. And farmers out plowing would just put the plow aside and get down on their knees and worship and people getting hammered in the pub would just put their glasses down and run to the church and young people out you know doing what young people do would just be convicted and run to the manse and the vicarage and wake up the pastor and say tell us what to do it was an extraordinary time it was the last revival that we in the British Isles have had. We've not had a revival since. In England, we haven't had one since the 20s, the lowest off revival, over a 100 years. We need a revival. But for renewal to become revival, the fear of the Lord is the door. Anyway, Campbell recalls that when he arrived on the Isle of Lewis, he says... I shall never forget the night that I arrived at the pier on the mail steamer. He says it was the 7th of December. I was met at the pier by a minister and two of his elders. Just as I stepped off the boat, an old elder came up to me and he faced me. He said, Mr. Campbell, can I ask you a question? Are you walking with God? Always a good question to ask a minister. And Campbell says, oh, here were men who meant business. And I was glad I was able to say to them, well, I fear God. He says, the elder looked at me and said, well, if you fear God, that'll do. If you fear God, that'll do. And the fear of God that really did grab the heart of that man was a context and became a conduit for God to come in great power upon the island and through 
the preaching of the gospel bring many to him. We haven't seen the like since in England or Scotland or Wales or Ireland. And we need to see it. We need a revival. We need the renewal in the church to spill out into our communities, into revival. And for that to happen, this, I believe, is a missing key. The fear of the Lord, a right understanding and a right relationship and a right alignment with him. And we can't expect it with our people that we minister to. It begins with us as the leaders of our church communities. We can't whip it up. We can't work it up. That's just religion, and that often leads to legalism, and that can quench the spirit. What we need is to ask the spirit of God to rest upon us, the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might, the spirit of the fear, knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and for the spirit to stir up in us a delight in the fear of the Lord. I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a cup of tea. Is that right? Well, Lord, we bless you. We thank you, Lord, that when we were still far off, you met us in your son and you brought us home. And dying, you gave us life. We bless you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of privileges of being called to serve you as ministers in your church for your people. We thank you that you've called us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We thank you that you've entrusted part of your bride to our care. And we pray, Lord, that you would do a work on us. You do a work in us, Lord. We pray that you'd forgive us where we have put ministry first. We pray you'd forgive us where you've, we've put ourselves first. We pray you'd forgive us, Lord, where we've put the fear of men first. And we want to put you first, Lord. We want you to be front and center. We wanted to be, we wanted it to be all about you, Lord. Of and for and by and with and from you. And we pray, Lord, you'd send your spirit upon us and you'd put in us the fear of the Lord. And we pray that our church communities and families would be marked by that and that that would overflow and break the banks and spill out into our neighborhoods. And we bless you, Lord. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening today. This was part one of three of Simon Ponsonby's January 2024 Gospel Gathering Talk. Part two, The Love of Jesus, is available right now wherever you're listening to this episode. And a video version is available, if you'd prefer, at togetherpdx.org slash podcast.